Um, okay, so let's uh, let's get into uh, the book of Acts here, and uh, invite you if you got a Bible at home, open up to Acts chapter four, verse twenty-three. And it's been a, a couple of weeks now since we've been able to um, go through this together, um, but uh, hope that kind of remember where we left off. Um, Peter had performed this healing. The Lord had performed this healing through Peter, and um, that evoked awe and wonder and also anger from the religious opponents. Um, and so then Peter and John stood before the council in the first part of Acts chapter 4 and gave another one of their um, speeches and were subsequently you know, chastised for it and, and called upon to stop speaking in the name of Christ. And they say, you know, how could we do this? It's not possible for us to continue to do this. Whether it's uh, right in the sight of God, let you decide. But as for us, we can't stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So now um, they are released, and we're going to pick up there in verse 23. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, no. they lifted their voices together to God. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay, so... If you've got your handout, uh, you can follow along here, and if not, I'll kind of lead you through it. But um, for those with the handout, number two on the handout says, faced with chaos, the Christian community collects in prayer. Faced with chaos, the Christian community collects in prayer. And how appropriate is that for <laughs> this time as we think about uh, we as the, as the people of God facing, if not quite chaos, um, certainly some unsettling circumstances. And for me, uh, my thoughts go to Philippians 4, the beautiful passage where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, Christ Jesus. So the Christians, the early believers, um, they go through this time where it's, it's the first waves of persecution are starting to come. They're thinking, what should we do? And of course, their first natural response is to form a task force to determine how are we going to respond to this persecution right now? We're going to need good messaging. We got to get this out. No, their first response yeah. is prayer. And I, I'm convicted by that because I think um, for, for many of us, our first response in the face of difficulties and trials um, is to start to, to problem solve. 
and to think strategically, okay, what do we got to do to deal with this challenge? Those are good things. Those are important things. They need to be done. But as we see with the, the believers here, the first response always and ever has to be prayer. And, and as far as we can gather together as the people of God to do that prayer, so much, so much the better. But they recognize, here's what we need to do to bring this before the Lord. And I want to point out, too, something really fascinating about um, the prayer that we have in verses really 24 through 30 is that it follows a particular pattern. Um, we call it the collect um, you know that from the, the prayers, kind of the prayer of the day that we have as part of worship is called a collect, the collect of the day. And this goes back even further to an ancient Jewish pattern of prayer called the barakah, which is uh, from the Hebrew word for blessing. And if you've got the handout, I've got a little table for you there. Um, this collect pattern, it's a five-fold pattern, although there's, uh, it, not every part of it has to be included in every one. Um, briefly, here's the five parts. Address, meaning who you're addressing the prayer to. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, to the triune God. The rationale, and this is kind of the basis for the prayer in Scripture, in the deeds of God, in his character. Thirdly is the petition. So this is kind of the prayer proper, what you're actually asking for from God. Fourth is the benefit, um, which is, okay, we're asking for this with the purpose that this might happen. And um, that's the part that's most often left off. And then fifth and finally, the conclusion offered in the name of the Lord. Now take a look at how this maps pretty clearly onto this collect or barakah pattern of prayer in these verses, in this prayer offered up by the disciples here. So first of all, you have the address in verse 24, sovereign Lord. They're addressing God, or this would be in the Old Testament um, when we see Lord God. It's the same idea. In Hebrew, they would have said Adonai Yahweh, Lord Yahweh, Sovereign Lord, um, is the idea there. So it's a very Old Testamenty way of addressing God. So that's the address. Then you have the rationale, and this is the longest part of it, which I think is, is significant. It's basing everything in who God is, what He has done. So starting in, in the latter half of verse 24, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and everything in them, creation, right? And then verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? And goes on from there with a quote from, from Psalm 2. I'll have more to say about that in a minute. And then it, it continues on with that through verses 27 and 28, all the rationale, the basis for offering this prayer. Until finally in verse 29, you get the, the actual petition, the prayer proper. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's the essence of their asking. That's the, the fundamental um, petition that they're asking God for. Boldness. To be able to continue to speak his word with boldness in the face of that persecution, in the face of that crisis, not to shrink back, not to, to lose heart, but instead to continue moving forward as the people of God. And then, this is fascinating. At the end of verse 30, I mentioned the benefit is not really in there, but the end of verse 30, you have the conclusion, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, some translations don't make this so clear. They kind of link that with the previous clause in the verse. 
You stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, that's true. The signs and wonders are performed through the name of Jesus. We saw that in chapter 3. But I think this is better understood as the conclusion to their prayer. In other words, they are offering their prayer through the name of Christ, not through the name of Jesus. How fascinating this is that already the Christians are making prayers in and through the name of Jesus. And this is what Jesus himself had said in um, the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 16. Um, he has told them, verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And again, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Paul in 2 Corinthians, he's hinting that this was already a practice of the church, that they are praying in and through the name of Jesus. Now, this is something that we kind of take for granted. It happens without us um, thinking twice about it. The moment we pray, we pray in and through the name of Jesus. But this is a, a tacit and implicit um, description of divinity to our Lord Jesus. It's associating him with God the Father. The prayer is offered up to God the Father, but through the name of Jesus, recognizing that it's in and through him that we have access to God the Father. So it's a really significant thing in terms of this, this pattern of prayer. All right, let me pause there for a second. Any, any questions or comments about that kind of collect? Yeah, and it's helpful if you do raise your hand. Thanks, Anne. Go ahead. What's your question? Um, what, can you tell us again what the word barakah means? So, yeah, barakah is a Hebrew word which means blessing. The plural form is barakot, um, and the, the verb is barak. So our, uh, our last president, his name was Barack Obama, and I don't know um, why his family named him that, but that comes from originally the Hebrew word Barak, meaning to bless. So Barakah is a, a blessing or a prayer. Good. Other, other questions? I got to, let's see. If I, and uh, if I don't have your video, I can't see your hand, obviously. Um, you can either put in the chat or you can um, just speak up. You might have to un unmute yourself. Going once, going twice. Okay. Well, anywhere along the way, if you if you got a question, something comes up, go ahead and just um, shoot me a uh, a text or a, a, a text, a chat here. Okay. Very good. Let's I have another question. Oh, okay. Go ahead, sweetie. Um, is there, when we pray, we kind of have, uh, a, we, uh, people pray in the Lord's name and they pray and, and we say at the end in Jesus name, but sometimes people say, uh, dear Jesus or dear heavenly father. Right. So what would be a reason? Does it matter? I mean, it matters, but sure. um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, a question about, you know, how we address and how we conclude. So um, insofar as we believe that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is um, uh, valid to offer prayers to any of the persons of the Trinity. Um, or to the Trinity as a whole, to the great Godhead. 
Um, generally speaking, we offer our prayers to the Father through the Son in, in the power of the Spirit. That's kind of the most fundamental um, pattern of that. Um, we recognize God as the Al- Almighty God, as the Father. And so prayers are most naturally, I'll put it that way, most naturally offered up to the Father. But that being said, um, for, for different reasons, depending on the nature of the prayer, we might want to offer, I think, uh, offer prayers to a particular person of the Trinity. And I think of, um, in the season of Advent, our collects are addressed to the Holy Spirit. Stir up your power, O Spirit, and come. Uh, it's that, that prayer and the request for the Holy Spirit to come down uh, upon us, to fill us, to inflame our hearts. So depending on the nature of the prayer, it might be um, more relevant to pray to the Father, to the Son, or to the Spirit. Um, but uh, in any event, it is heard by God. That's the most important thing. So, good. Any other questions? All right. Let's uh, continue on. The number three on your handout on, on page two, if you have that in front of you, um, is that the Old Testament is interpreted through a Jesus-shaped lens. Now, we've already had occasion to, uh, to notice this a couple other times as we've been going through the book of Acts, but really, we can't say it enough. that they, The way that they are doing this proclamation, and even in their prayers, they're recognizing that the, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, to them, just the scriptures, have been fulfilled and embodied in the person of Jesus. And so you have this long application, I mean, not long, but a couple of verses application of Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So that the word anointed there in Greek, it's Christos, Christ. And in Hebrew, it's Mashiach, Mashiach, the Messiah. Okay, it's the Hebrew word for Messiah. And uh, you have that, that probably is what first was the, the hook for them to think of Psalm 2. And then they go back there, and as they're reading Psalm 2, they realize, wait a second, this is just narrating the history of, of what's happened with Jesus. So the Gentiles rage, the kings of the earth set themselves, and then they go on to say in verse 27, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, right? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So they're reading that Old Testament scripture through the lens of Jesus and what has happened to him. And again, they were taught to interpret this way by our Lord himself. He said in, at the end of Luke's gospel, and he says something similar elsewhere, um, Jesus said to them, Luke 24, starting with verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus told them, Everything was written about me in the law of Moses, the Torah, in the prophets, the the Navi'im is the Hebrew word, um, and then the Psalms or the writings. That's covering the whole of the Old Testament, which they called the Tanakh, Torah, uh, Navi'im, prophets, and Kathuvim, the writings. Tanakh is is, uh, kind of an acronym of that. So it was right there for them, and now they're reading it and seeing it through through that Jesus-shaped lens. Thoughts or, or questions about that?
watch. Okay, good. So we'll continue on. I want to uh, spend a little time um, on the substance of their prayer, their petition, which is boldness. What they're praying for is boldness. And number four on your handout, free and fearless confidence or boldness. The Greek word is parousia, is a corollary to faith in Christ. Now, as we um, continue through the book of Acts, we see that this is a, a repeated theme. And I've given you just a few references there. Earlier in chapter 4, chapter 9, verse 27, 14, verse 3, 19, verse 28. Um, and there's more besides. I think there's seven or eight times when this comes up. And uh, the idea is that, look, you, you have these disciples who, as we see them in the Gospels, are, are timid, are frightened, are fearful. Um, Peter himself, you know, is the, the one who denies the Lord, but now he's filled with boldness and confidence. This is one of the real marks of the work of the Holy Spirit within God's people, that now they have this free and fearless confidence in him. And this is echoed elsewhere in the New Testament. To give you just a few references, you have them there on your handout. Ephesians 3.12, in him, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, our uh, Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence, same word, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And once more in 1 John, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. So our faith in Christ and what he has done, his perfect love drives out Fear drives out that uncertainty and instead in its place leaves confidence, leaves boldness so that we can come before the, the judgment seat of God, so that we can go before the world with this, this posture of, of courage, a free and fearless confidence. I mean, what could be a more timely prayer in this time when so many people are, are feeling fearful and needing courage? Um, I highlighted this in my message earlier this week um, because I think it's just uh, it, it's the, the most basic thing that we need as God's people is we need boldness. We need courage, especially in times like this. And again, in the small catechism, Luther picks up on this, the introduction to the um, uh, Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. What does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and that we are his true children so that with all boldness and confidence, we may ask him as dear children ask their dear father. Um, I find it interesting also that Aristotle, you know, the ancient Greek philosopher, um, he wrote a lot about the virtues and he said that courage is basically the, the sine qua non virtue. In other words, the virtue without which none others. If you don't have courage, if you don't have boldness, you're not going to be able to practice all of the other virtues. Now, obviously, Aristotle said that from what we would call like a secular perspective. Um, but how much more is that the case for us as Christians? Knowing that for us to live as believers before the world and before our God, we're going to need that kind of courage and confidence without which we can't practice any of the other virtues. We need that to start with, then we're able to go forward boldly um, to, to live the rest of our lives of faith. So um, it's just, it, it strikes me that this was their prayer for boldness. 
Um, any other um, comments or questions about that, that boldness and that, the need for it in our times? Now, um, some of you might be thinking, okay, pastor, boldness is really important, but here we are having Bible study over the internet because we didn't gather together. Now, how is that, how is that boldness? But I want to say that boldness is also conjoined with, with love. And as Christians, um, we can be acting in, in love toward others and still be bold. I think, it, frankly, it, um, it takes some boldness for us not to be gathering in this time, to uh, refrain from gathering, to recognize, you know what, we, it, the most more natural thing and, in a sense, easier thing for us to do right now would be to gather together as his believers and to say, you know what, we're just going to, to keep on keeping on. It's what I, I want for us to be able to do. But at this time, in, in bold love, we're saying we're going to refrain from doing that, finding other creative ways to gather for the sake of um, our weaker brothers and sisters, for the sake of those who are most vulnerable and in need. So um, it's not how the ideal, but it is what, what we're doing for the time being. And Lord willing, it won't be for, for too long. But um, it's not to the... Uh, it's not to the neglect of boldness. Still, we're called to witness boldly as Christian believers in the midst of this time of, of crisis. Any other questions or comments? Can I come in? Yeah. Um, this, is, this is Chip. Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Chip. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Cool. Um, right now, with so much uncertainty, you know, there's, you know, obviously I'm, I'm praying that, uh, our family stays safe and our, and our friends and, you know, but I'm also praying, you know, about the camp season and such, you know, and, um, you know, how do you align boldness with like, you know, like with expectations, you know, because part of it is like, you know, you should, you're hearing reports about this timeline and that timeline. And, and, you know, I am praying that this virus pandemic ends right now and that everyone's healed and that uh people don't lose their jobs because of it those also don't seem to be very realistic right right and and so you know i guess i'm guarding myself about getting my hopes up yeah. you know or being disappointed in god because things don't turn out the way that i had wanted them you know and so you know, like, what should we be praying for be praying for that there's all that's taken from us or that or that we keep our faith and our sanity and our in, in, in our and in, in stay calm during this time yeah no that's a great question and what so a couple of things there um how does this boldness fit with our expectations what you know what should be kind of proper expectations and and what should we be praying for i want to um answer the uh kind of take that in, in order the first thing in terms of our expectations um i've thought a lot this week about uh, what's been called the Stockdale Paradox. And maybe some of you guys are familiar with this from uh, um, Jim Collins's book, Good to Great, um, which actually is a really good book. I'm not always a huge fan of kind of those business leadership books, uh, but that one is pretty good. Um, but in that, he, he recounts Jim Stockdale. Maybe some of you guys remember this um, guy. He was a, a great war hero. He's actually uh, uh, the vice president candidate with Ross Perot um, in the early 90s. Um, but Stockdale was, uh, he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam for years. And um, as, as he was there, along with others of his men, um, some of them survived. Some of them had the, um, the, the grit 
and the will to make it through and others didn't. And um, he was asked and he, many times afterward, you know, what was the difference? Why did some make it and others didn't? Or, you know, specifically who didn't make it? I mean, these were all tough guys. These are all, you know, um, soldiers. They were all courageous in their own way. Who are the ones who didn't make it through? And um, Stockdale doesn't think twice about it, but he says, the optimists. He says, the optimists are the ones who would always say, well, you know, maybe we'll get, we'll get released in Christmas. Maybe we'll get released come Easter. And through that kind of slow drip as it went longer and longer, um, they found themselves unable to cope. And ultimately, it, it really uh, it, it crushed their spirit. He says the ones who were able to withstand it, were, they were both brutally honest about the realities of the situation and yet still boundlessly hopeful that ultimately good would prevail. And Stockdale himself is coming from a, a position of faith. And I think for us as believers, that's the only posture that we can come from. I think that there's some real truth to this. And Jesus himself exhibits this as well, where on the one hand, he's, he's brutally honest with the disciples. He tells them, look, it's not going to be easy for you guys as you go forward. But at the same time, he is boundlessly hopeful because he knows how the story ends. So Chip, to that question, you know, how, how can we square this and what does this boldness look like? I don't think it's optimism. I think it's realism, but it's a hopeful realism grounded in who Christ is and what he has already accomplished, knowing that, you know what, maybe this isn't going to get better for a few weeks, a few months, even a couple of years. We don't know what lay ahead in this age, okay? Um, but what we do know is that ultimately Christ has the victory, and that's the, the ground and the source of our hope and our confidence. So what should we be praying in the midst of it? I think 100% we should be praying for this to end as soon as possible. I mean, we don't, have, I, we don't need to be too pious about this and say, well, you know, this is, I'm, I'm so glad for this because uh, we know that God is going to work good things through it. That's true, but we can still be honest with the Lord and say, Lord, I pray that you would root this pestilence out as quick as possible. This is um, a very biblical prayer going through through the Psalms. And Luther himself um, counseled this. Pray that it stop. Pray that our neighbors be protected, that our nation be protected. Pray that our faith would remain strong in the midst of this. And pray for our neighbors that through this this uh, pandemic, many others would be brought to faith in the midst of it. So um, I don't know if that answers your question or not. It's a long-winded answer, but um, I think it's an important question for us to be thinking about, but uh, not, to be, not to be bashful about praying for the Lord. Deliver us from this. What we say in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. It's okay to call this thing for what it is. I mean, it, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. And in the age to come, when Christ comes again, there will not be plagues and pandemics. I can promise you that. Um, other follow-up questions or comments about that? I have one. Two. I want to say that um, already I think that is a bold prayer, the prayer that um, everyone is healed right now. And I so already, you know, I, I see boldness in that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I encourage us to pray. Well, some have said Psalm 91 is kind of the plague prayer. <laughs> um, it's the, the prayer of, of protection from pestilences. And uh, I encourage you to, um, to use that, to, to turn to that 
Um, and uh, uh, also the litany, which we prayed in, uh, um, um, in the evening prayer, if you were able to um, watch that from Wednesday. Um, I, I encourage people to use the litany. I sent that out um, with the email on Wednesday, and it's also in the Lutheran service book, if you have it, on page 288, I think. It has uh, a prayer for uh, you know, praying against pestilences. Look, this is nothing new in history. And when you read about the plagues that afflicted people in the Middle Ages, um, so far at least, this thing is letting us off easy. Um, I haven't heard anything about boils yet. So I'm, I'm praying that boils not come into the equation. <laughs> not tamp down the seriousness of this, but just to recognize, man, um, this kind of thing continually afflicts people uh, throughout history. And so, yeah, there's a lot of prayers. When you start to go through the tradition, a lot of prayers from Christians about being delivered from plague. All right. Any other um, comments or, or questions about that? Okay. So let's uh, continue forward. And um, uh, number five on your handout, page three, just a, a quick note, a uh, reflection on those verses. In verse 31, it says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I mean, here I say number five on your handout, witness flows from worship. And I mean, worship there in, in, the, bold, in the, the broad sense of coming before God, receiving from him, communing with him in prayer, receiving his gifts. That's the basis. I've talked about this again and again. That's the rhythm, right? The rhythm is receiving and then responding. So our, we have our cup filled um, from Christ and th through his gifts, and then we're able boldly to go out. Don't think that we can just drum up this boldness in ourselves. It can come. It can only come through the power of, of the Holy Spirit. And uh, William Williman, one of my teachers, says that in the rhythm of action and speech, witness and worship, the church discovers the source of its life. Source of its life comes from God. Then we can't help but go out and boldly uh, bear witness to the truth of, of who God is and what he's up to in the midst of this pestilence and plague. All right, let's go forward into uh, verses 32 through 37. We got about 10 minutes left. Um, start with verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right. Let's see. Um, so uh, this passage is once again, uh, it's very similar to um, what we had in um, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, um, where it focuses on the, the people of God and on their life together. Um, so you see how the, the gospel is flowing out within their lives. So number six on your handout, the church is a jubilee community. 
The church is a jubilee community. Um, you remember, perhaps, from the uh, Old Testament, um, the, this idea of the jubilee. So in Deuteronomy 15 is one of the places where it speaks of that. Um, it says, you shall give to him freely, meaning to the poor, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Now this is a verse that Jesus famously quotes, that the poor you will always have among you. But the, then the, the corollary to that, or the consequence of that, isn't, therefore, don't worry about it, don't give to the poor. They're always going to be there, so why bother? But it's just the opposite. The poor will always be among you, therefore, you shall open wide your hand to your brother and to the needy, to the poor in your land. Within the, the church, you're seeing in this picture from Acts a kind of realization of that jubilee idea that now as those who have um, been freely forgiven by Christ, that he is our jubilee, that now they are freely giving to others, freely um, shedding forth his, his mercy and his grace. Uh, this is also reflected in uh, 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says, I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now we commented on this when we were in chapter 2. I'll say it again, it bears repeating. This is not a kind of early version of communism, okay? There's no coercion. You're not hearing from the apostles forcing everybody that now they're going to take over everybody's goods and they're going to force everyone to um, what, have kind of control of, of all of everyone's goods or the production of those goods. That's not what we have at all. Instead, we have the free and spontaneous giving of the people of God for the sake of those who are in need. It's just reflecting what Jesus said in the Gospels when he said, freely you have received, freely give. They have been given everything by him and now they are freely going to share with their desk in his office. And so uh, I think, you know, how appropriate a word is this for us right now, um, as a lot of people are in need. And I think as the church, we're going to have to think about what does it look like for us to help one another to bear this burden together as the people of God, as, as some of us are struggling with work, not having the, the income that we're accustomed to. I think as Christians, we're going to be called upon to support one another in prayer, in encouragement, but also in very practical and financial ways. How can we share with one another um, to, to build one another up, to provide for each other? Um, I don't know what all that's going to, to look like, but this is what Christians have done from time eternal, from the very beginning. Um, they have shared with one another to ensure that it's not that some have while others are, are struggling. And the locus of that is within the local church and uh, within the body of believers in this place as we see, okay, who's struggling? Who needs help? And uh, just do a, a quick plug there also. Um, we've been organizing the Arcadia Care Team, and um, I've sent out links from that in previous emails. You can go back and check that out. I encourage you to sign up for that. The idea with that is just how can we band together to help one another um, in just simple ways, but tangible kinds of ways. 
Um, not too tangible, of course, keeping proper social distancing, <laughs> but, um, you know, helping to, to get groceries, to call on one another, um, to do these little things that are going to continue to weave us together as a, a community of care. Um, reflections or, or comments on this, this picture of the, the early church here, and, and then I'll, I'll close this with one last thought. But any questions or comments about this, this picture in Acts 4, which we've seen also in, earlier in Acts as well? It's challenging, right? It, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, go ahead, Grace. Um, well, the whole thing about like helping the poor sounds a lot like a contradiction to what is called social Darwinism, which yeah. is basically the belief that, it's a secular belief, obviously, that um, like whatever like people are either, um, rich, poor, and there's nothing anyone can do to change that, and that you shouldn't even try to change that. Right. Right. That's, thanks, Grace. That's great. You're absolutely 100% right. That um, uh, social Darwinism says... So I'm turning into a Bible study. Uh, let the let the poor just go their way. Sorry, they uh, it's it's too bad for them. Um, you know, they're, the sooner that they can be taken off of society's roles, the better. But Christianity was really a revolution in Christian society, in, in society in Western civilization because now there's this ethic of we're going to care for the poor and the marginalized and the needy. This was not present uh, before the time of Christ. I mean, I, let me put it this way: outside of um, the the Judeo-Christian community, because this goes back to the Old Testament ethic as well. You did not have this kind of systemic, intentional, concerted effort um, and um, preferential option, as sometimes it's been called, for the poor to ensure that they are cared for, that we are providing for them. Um, so, yeah, it absolutely, absolutely flies in the face of uh, a kind of social Darwinist ethic. Great, great comment, Grace. Any other um, comments or, or questions? Yeah, Ryan. Um, you know, I think I mean it's. I, I think it's amazing how quickly, like things have changed. You know, and right. you know, and and it's just such a quick whiplash. I think we also need to have grace for those who can't transition that quickly. You know what I mean? Who are right. who are still maybe hoarding or you know you know worried about themselves and everything and, and not maybe so concerned about their neighbor. I just, I mean, it's happened so quickly here that uh, we probably, you know, I, I think back in Jesus' day, there were much more of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of a communal existence to begin with. Right. And we, us in the Western culture are very more individualistic. Right. And uh, I just think it's, it's, it's it's probably thirty March twenty second is nineteen hours ago. So all right. Yep. <laughs> um, that's right, Chip. I I mean it's it is it's kind of it's a little bit troubling to see how quickly people can lapse into that kind of mindset that we're just gonna I'm just gonna get mine. I'm gonna uh, make sure that I that I have mine. And I think that's why it's all the more incumbent upon us as believers to be boldness in our care and concern for our neighbor and um, to in, ensure that. We're showing compassion um, to all people. Now, I, I want to underscore again that um, this picture in the book of Acts, it's not um, somehow counseling a certain sort of governmental public policy or something like that. This is how we as the people of God live. Galatians 6.10 is really um, uh, helpful here too when um, 
Paul says, says to the Galatians, um, let me turn to it real quick. Um, Galatians. Uh, so in Galatians 6.10, um, Paul says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So um, as the church, we care for one another within the church, and we allow that to radiate to those who are outside of the, the household of faith. But um, it is important for us to distinguish that this is, the, this is the ethic of the people of God, and it certainly can't be just um, impressed and forced upon those who aren't believers. Frankly, we can't expect those who don't have this faith in Christ to act like Christians. We can't enforce it or coerce it. This comes freely th through the, the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. All the more reason for us as Christians um, to lead the way and to show the world there is a better way as we live as, as the body of Christ. Hey, uh, let me just give you one last thought. Number seven on your handout. In this way, the congregation is the hermeneutic of the good news. Now, that's $5 pastor talk to say hermeneutic is a fancy word talking about the, the lens of interpretation. And the congregation provides the lens of interpretation for the gospel for the outside world. So people are wondering right now, what is, what is the good news? What does this look like? And they're seeing it acted out or not through Christians and through the church, how we are, are living. And uh, I put on here that great grace um, leads to great power. And I want you to, to notice this in Acts chapter 4, verse 33. It says, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all because that grace was embodied in the Christian community in their life together. And um, as they were you know, sharing that, that forgiveness with the outside world, um, then they had great power. They had credibility to their proclamation. And so that great power accompanied their testimony because the outside world was seeing it lived out within the body of Christ. And I want to leave you with this quote from uh, Leslie Newbegin. He was a, a missiologist, um, a, a missionary and theologian in the 20th century. He wrote this 25 years ago. He said, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the, the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Insofar as the local congregation is true to its calling, it becomes the place where men and women and children find that the gospel gives them the framework of understanding, the lenses through which they're able to understand and cope with the world. In other words, people see, they make sense of the fact that there is a resurrected Christ and, uh, that we, we believe that and practice that, they can see Jesus is risen because of how we live. There's no other explanation. If Jesus isn't out of the grave, then you had better just stock up on your toilet paper right now and make sure that you are getting yours, even at the expense of others, because that has the last word. But if Christ and his resurrection has the last word, then we're able to move forward boldly and confidently knowing that he's got our back every step of the way. And through that, the world is going to be able to see and know that there is a Lord who has risen from the dead. Guys, thank you for uh, tuning in today. Had a little bumps along the way. It'll be smoother next week, probably. 
Also want to remind you, for those of you who are in town, that we are offering curbside Holy Communion uh, from 11 to noon. I'm going to go out there and get it ready right now. Um, feel free to drop by. You don't even have to get out of the car. Um, we'll uh, give the Lord's gifts that way. But uh, such a blessing to be with you. Let me close us with a word of prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, we do pray that you who gave boldness to your people, to um, the disciples, the apostles, as they went out, that you would give us your boldness now, that we would move forward courageously and fearlessly, knowing that you are with us every step of the way. Dear Lord, as we go about our lives right now in the midst of this uh, pandemic, we pray that we would not shrink back in fear, but continue to go forward boldly in love, trusting that you are with us every step of the way. Thank you for being with us now. And as we studied your word, illuminate our path as we go forward in the light of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, thank you guys. God bless you. And I hope to see you soon. Take care. Good people.